um, ran across a blog this week. It's actually from a couple of years ago. There was an author who was also a blogger. Um, are bloggers authors? I think most of them probably aren't. This, this one is. Her name is Rachel Held Evans, and she blogged about something that went viral at the time a couple of years ago, 15 Reasons I Left the Church. And some of them are really insightful and really provocative. Uh, things like, I left the church because when we talked about sin, we mostly talked about sex. I left the church because my questions were seen as liabilities. I left the church because sometimes it felt like a cult or a country club, and I wasn't sure which was worse. It's interesting to me, the next day, if I got the blog dates right, the next day she blogged 15 reasons why she returned to the church. So I don't know if she like left for a day and then came back, but she said things like Jesus, which is a fabulous reason to come back to the church because of Jesus. She says, I came back because the fact that when somebody gets sick or dies or has a baby or loses their job, it's the church ladies who are the first to show up at the front door with a casserole and a hug. Thank God for church ladies, right? Communion was a reason she came back. But it makes me wonder, how do you feel about the church? Not, not so much what do you believe about the church. How do you feel about the church? Could I say of you and have it be spot on that you love the church? Do you love the church? Would that be going a bit too far for you? Maybe, maybe it'd be better for you to say, I'm committed to the church. Or I, I put up with the church. Maybe that's more reflective. What if I were to say, if you don't love the church, you're not of God? What if I pushed it even farther and said, if, if you don't love the church, you're of the devil? That'd be a little too strong. That'd go a little too far, probably. What if I were to say that those words are taken right out of the Bible? There's a fascinating letter that's written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. He's known as the Apostle of Love. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, listen to what he says. He says, by this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Brother, as we're going to see, is not so much flesh and blood brother as it is spiritual brother and sister in the Lord. He's talking about the church. Um, so how do you feel about the church? Not, not about the building, about the folk. How do you feel about the church folk? that you know. Not some abstract Catholic or universal church, but how do you feel about this church? How do you feel about your church? Do you love the church? Are you growing in love for the church or not so much? Let's pray about that, and then we'll look at the rest of John's teaching on this together, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, be merciful to us and give us ears to hear about our own lives right now, our own souls, our own loves or, or lack of love. May your spirit take your word now and with grace and beauty and power apply it skillfully to us 
Again, give us ears to hear, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I, John cannot be clearer, I don't think. This whole idea of loving your brother, we could add, and sister uh, in the Lord, it's uber important, wouldn't you say? Really off the charts important. It's a big deal. It is one of the decisive markers between the children of God and the children of the devil, he says. And he wants to address this particular marker of loving one another in the verses that follow. In verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, when he says we ought to love one another, this is not the first time it's showed up in your Bible, getting near the end of the Bible, and all of a sudden, like an afterthought, oh, oh yeah, love one another. If you you go back to the teachings of Jesus, John, the same John, likely recorded those teachings of Jesus in John 13, where Jesus himself says, a new commandment I give to you, That you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, from the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, this is the core message that's been given to his followers. It's what is the mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer called it. And without that mark... John puts you in a whole different category. He says, you're not of God. You are of the devil. And he says that those of us who claim to follow Christ are to live differently from those who do not, especially in this regard. He says, look, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John now is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And he's reminding us of the story of two brothers, Cain and his brother Abel. Abel brings an offering to God that God accepts and is pleased with. Cain brings an offering that's rejected. And John tells us in apparent jealous spite, Cain murders his brother. And so this story and the name of Cain has become kind of a paradigm. He's kind of the poster boy for an evil turning away from God and turning away from love of brother. So John says, don't be like Cain. Don't yield to jealousy and envy that lead even to murder. Now most of us hear that and we think, I'm good with that been a long time since I murdered anybody. I got this one. Don't murder. Check. The the problem is with these really troubling words that Jesus spoke about murder. Maybe you remember them from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Maybe there's more of us in here like Cain than we would like to admit. Some of us might be murderers in here, in our hearts. And so John is dividing up humanity in, very, in two very clear categories of people. Those who are of God on the one hand and those who are of the evil one, of the devil on the other. He says Cain is of the evil one and as a result he does not love his brother who is a follower of God, a worshiper of God. He hates and he even murders. And the great distinguishing mark between these two groups is how you feel about your brothers and sisters, how you feel about the people of God, how you feel about the church. See, the only people who love the church are the church. Okay. Don't live like Cain, he says, who didn't love his brother because he was of the evil one. This is the mark of the world. But our mark... We love our brothers and sisters seated around us. We love the church. He goes on and says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, as I mentioned, Cain has become kind of a paradigm of sorts. He represents the world who does not know God, who does not love the people of God, and in fact is opposed to those things. John says, it's been that way since the beginning, as far back as Cain. Don't be surprised that the world doesn't love you, that the world even hates you. And so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when we see things like this. This is actually from our, our sister country to the north, from Canada. It's a mockery of the Bible. It's a billboard ad by an atheist uh, organization called Dave 27, verse 1. Lead with your heart, not your Bible. And their slogan is, without God, we're all good. Okay. Here's another one. Gen 13, verse 1. It says, praying won't help, doing will. Without God, we're all good. John says, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by it. One of the clearest demarcations between believers and unbelievers is that we love the brothers. We love the church. And the world does not. John's not thinking about love generically here. He has a particular object of love in mind. He's thinking about loving the brothers. He's thinking about loving God's people. He's thinking about loving the church. And he's lumping people into two groups, not three, not four. There are those who are of God and love the brothers and have eternal life. And there are those who are of the devil and hate and murder and abide in death. Now, some of you this morning um, who were drugged here by a friend may be thinking, you know, I really don't love the church, but I don't hate the church. I'm honestly kind of just okay-ish, indifferent to the church. Um, you know, John doesn't have a category for you. You're in no man's land, and it's a very precarious place to be. 
See, to fail to love the church, the people in this room, evidences a life apart from God. To hate is to abide in death, to be outside of the life that God offers. To fail to love is to be a murderer in here and to be without eternal life. This kind of love we're talking about is found only in relationship with God. If you just flip your Bible one page over to 1 John 4, John continues writing about this. And he says in in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John is making us wonder here. Can you even be a Christian if you don't love the church? His words are that strong. Well, verse 16 is really the tipping point for everything that he's saying. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, the way that we know this love that generates a love for the church, for God's people, is that we understand that Christ laid down His life for us. The generosity of the Son, the giving of the Son in laying down His life. When we get the love of Christ for us, when we grasp that this great giving act, the giving of His life is for us, that fuels, it's intended and designed to fuel a love for one another. When we come to grips that the agony of Him being publicly whipped again and again and again The humility of the crown of thorns pressing into his brow. The mockery of the soldier's cruel games being spat upon. The crushing weight of the cross beam as he carried it up Calvary. The nails that were driven through his hands and feet. The public mockery. The aloneness of it all as he was separated from the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. See, we know what it is to be loved when we get that. That Jesus' great sacrificial act of love and laying down His life on the cross was for us on our behalf. That is what it means to be loved. This great generosity of Jesus laying down His life for us, for the church, that's love. And this love is what fuels our love for the brothers and sisters, for the people of God, for the church. Now, you would think that what he would say is this, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to love him in return. Wouldn't wouldn't, that make more sense? Jesus sacrificed for us, so we ought to love him. And of course, that's true, and it underlies everything that's being said here. But John takes another angle on this. He says, he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. And there's a couple of reasons why he takes this turn. One is that the love of Christ, by its very nature and magnitude, is pass-onable. It is built to be 
passed on. It is too voluminous for us to contain it at the edge of our property, at the edge of our family, to keep it just for us. John writes in, that, in the next page of your Bible, in chapter 4, he writes and says this, We love because He first loved us. It's, it's as though this love cannot be constrained. It's built to be shared. In verses 10 and 11 of the next chapter, John writes, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's too great a love just to be limited to me and mine. It begs to be passed on to others. It's built to be passed on to others. And John says, especially to one another, to the people in this room, to your church. Now, the second reason that he takes this angle of love towards others is that, is that understanding that Jesus loves us causes us to see our brothers differently. You see, he did not simply love me and give himself for me, as the hymn says. He did that and more. He didn't just lay down his life for me. John does not say that. He laid down his life for us. So, what that means is now, seated all around you are the ones Jesus loves. The beloved of God is sitting next to you and across the room from you, and back behind you a bit. That's who these people are, who they've become. To love Jesus is to love the ones He loves. Just like, if you love me, you will love the ones I love. Say we're building a friendship, we're getting to know each other, and we're going out for coffee. We go to the coffee shop and we start a conversation. Turns out you know my wife and kids. And you start talking about, oh, yeah, I know your wife. And you start ragging on my wife. Okay. And then you start, yeah, I know your kids too. And you start ragging on my kids. Let me just be honest. You're never going to get to my kids. Okay. You're not going to get past my wife. If you're ragging on my wife, the conversation is going to change. Okay. It's going to end. And probably our friendship is going to end. Okay? Because if you really love me, you love the people I love. Okay? Love me, love my people. Okay? Um, we could say, love Jesus, love the church, His people. My favorite story that illustrates this um, I shared it at Creed Camp a couple years ago with our youth. Uh, it's written by John Ortberg, and he tells it like this. He says, her name was Pandy. She had lost a good deal of her hair. One of her arms was missing, and generally speaking, she'd had the stuffing knocked out of her. She was my sister Barbie's favorite doll. When Pandy was young and a looker, Barbie loved her. She loved her with a love that was true, too strong for Pandy's own good. When Barbie went to bed at night... Pandy lay next to her. When Barbie had lunch, Pandy ate beside her at the table. When Barbie could get away with it, Pandy took a bath with her. Barbie's love for that doll was, from Pandy's point of view, pretty near a fatal attraction. He says, by the time I knew Pandy, 
She was not a particularly attractive doll. In fact, to tell the truth, she was a mess. She was no longer a very valuable doll. I'm not sure we could have given her away. But for reasons that no one could ever quite figure out in the way that kids sometimes do, my sister Barbie loved that little rag doll still. She loved her as strongly in the days of Pandy's raggedness as she ever had in her days of great beauty. Other dolls came and went. Pandy was family. Love Barbie, love her rag doll. It was, it was a package deal. He says, once we took a vacation from our home in Rockford, Illinois to Canada, we had returned almost all the way home when we realized at the Illinois border that Pandy had not come back with us. She had remained behind at the hotel in Canada. No other option was thinkable. My father turned the car around and we drove from Illinois all the way back to Canada. He says, we were a devoted family. Not a particularly bright family, perhaps, but devoted. We rushed into the hotel and checked with the desk clerk in the lobby. No pandy. We ran back up to our room. No pandy. We ran downstairs and found the laundry room. Pandy was there, wrapped up in the sheets, about to be washed to death. He says, the measure of my sister's love for that doll was that she would travel all the way to a distant country to save her, he writes. He says, when I was growing up, I had all kinds of casual playthings and stuffed animals. My mother didn't save any of them. But she saved Pandy. Want to guess why? He says, when I was younger, I thought it was perhaps because my mother loved my bratty little sister more than she loved me. But he says, the nature of my sister's love is what made Pandy so valuable. Barbie loved that little doll with the kind of love that made the doll precious to anyone who loved Barbie. All those tears and hugs and secrets got mixed up in the rags somehow. If you loved Barbie, you just naturally loved Pandy too. And so, love Jesus, love his rag dolls. They're seated all around you this morning. They're a couple rows back. They're over in this section over here. We are all Jesus' rag dolls. Love Jesus. Love His rag dolls. To be loved by Jesus inescapably causes us to have a love for Jesus. And then we naturally love what He loves. We love his rag dolls. We love his brothers and sisters. We love his bride. We love the church. People who are seated around you in this room, if they are Jesus beloved, then they are to be loved by us. You know, those of you who live in Twitterdom, I have sympathy for you, and I know that you get tweets, run across tweets from time to time, tweets that say things like this I love Jesus. I'm just not very wild about his bride. Right? You've seen those kind of things? Um, you know, you hear those things, and on one level you understand it, but when you read John, 1 John 3, there's something terribly out of sorts with that, isn't there? That's one of the problems I have with Rachel Held Evans happily talking about leaving the Little C local church one day and the next day blogging about returning to the big C universal church the next day. 
I, I think if you had sat down with the Apostle John and said, you know, I love the church, the idea of the church, the people of God. It's my local church that just drives me crazy. I think he'd have looked at you in disbelief. It's entirely possible that the, the apostle of love might have smacked you upside the head if you had said that. C.S. Lewis captures the problem with that. He says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive, like the church. He says, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. John is now going to get extremely practical, really too practical for our comfort zone in these last two verses we want to look at. He says, Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says that in particular, love is shown in the meeting of a brother or sister's need. That's how God's love is put on display. If you become aware of a need of a fellow follower of Jesus, somebody in this room, and you have the ability to meet that need, and you close your heart against them, that's the language he uses, you close your heart against them, then you are damming up the love of God at the edge of your life, you and your family, it's just for me. And that we must not do. We take a great love and we make it very, very small when we do that. It is a betrayal of the scope of the love of God that He has demonstrated for us. John ends by saying, it's not enough to talk about love. Love requires action. And I ran across this ad by the Ad Council. It could be a commercial for what John is saying in 1 John 3 here. Watch, watch what it says. John is calling us, those of us who have tasted of the love of Christ, to live lives that mark us as distinct from the world. And he has in mind particularly that we would love one another, not almost love one another, not talk about loving one another, but that we would love one another in tangible ways. When one has a need and another has the means, that need is met in love. Having tasted of the generosity of the love of Christ towards us, we are compelled, just compelled, to pass it on. 
Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, he'd say, for the love of Christ controls us. Some of your Bibles might say it compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that, of course, means that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, just like last week, I find myself in the situation of teaching a text that at first reading has absolutely nothing to do with our capital campaign and our giving towards that need. But again, if you'll think about it, I think it has everything to do with it. If I can put it real simply, having been loved by Christ, we're glad to meet the needs of our church as we can. We're glad to. It's how we love our church. We meet its needs. Individually and collectively. Paying off our church's debt is a very practical way to love our church and help us meet a great need. As somebody who's been involved in this campaign from the start for more than 10 years now, let me just share with you, when, some, when a newbie joins in, that's, that's my love language, okay? That's love, that you would join in a decision that you did not make so that you could bless and serve and love the church. That's, that's fabulous. Um, we have uh, this week in your email, believe it or not, you received a newsletter. It looks like this. Most of you did not read it. You should read it. Okay? It's full of really helpful, encouraging testimonies about people who are involved in it. One of them is, is uh, Mike and Barry Durstein, and they are, um, they're new to our church. But they've joined into giving towards our capital campaign. And this is what Mike writes. He says, The journey of faith for us is so much more than just about a building. It's about giving thanks for a place to worship the living and active God. It's about supporting a ministry where each week we're poured into through expository teaching and in which we pour ourselves out through service to others. It's about an expectation that in this place we will continue to see God raise up leaders to plant new churches and missionaries to carry God's word far beyond our community. It's about a safe place for young mothers to find connection and hope, a space for students to be led in discipleship, a storehouse to feed the hungry, and so much more. We felt led to be a part of the journey of faith because it is an investment in the multiplying work of Northway. This is a significant need that our church has. Joining in that need and meeting that need is a very practical way of showing love for our church. Now, one of the things that was most distressing to me last year was that of a, a third of our church... Um, did not participate. It's not just that they didn't give. Next week I'll explain to you, there's an option for you to participate and not give. If you lost your job or some catastrophe has fallen, you cannot give anymore, then you have the chance to just write, count me in. It means that you'll pray for us and you'll ask God to bless you in such a way that you can participate. A third of our church just said, no thanks. Not interested even in that. You guys bear the burden. And... Um, you know, we need your help as God enables you. Help, help us meet this need. Okay. Giving to Journey of Faith, I believe, is really good training for my heart and for your heart that get 
turned in so easily in a bent and twisted world. It helps us turn our hearts outward towards others, even others in our church. It it helps us heed Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, that's us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, some of you may be tempted to think, but if I give to the capital campaign, then that's money that I don't have to give to a brother in need. And while there's some truth to that, I understand that, I'd like to help you think about a different angle on that. I think there's another principle, a more powerful principle that's operative here. Um, For sure, it's what I've seen. I have found that this capital campaign, Journey of Faith, has been for me a training ground for generosity in my tight waddish heart. Um, The more faithful, it's interesting, the more faithful I am to give in this matter to the needs of the church, the more open-handed I am towards brothers and sisters in need. Um, There is a direct correspondence. I am not near as much of a tightwad as I was 10 years ago. God has used this process for me to to make me more generous. And so next year, Steph and I have prayed about it, we've talked about it, and we're going to increase our gift to Journey of Faith by a third. That's a lot for us. But it's good for my heart. It pries it loose from me. And uh, I just want to say, join me. All our hearts are like that. They need to be pried open to love others. And opening our wallet is training for our hearts. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And this opens our wallets directly to blessing and and meeting the needs of our church. Our hearts will follow. Um, And we do need help with that. We need help to grow in loving our church. Let me, let me show you an example why I think we need help with that. Here's, here's a cartoon. It's the after-service coffee. And the caption, in case you can't read it, up there is, this is the time when newcomers can get to know the congregation. Guess where the newcomer is, right? Yeah. Um, this, now from time to time, our guests who visit our church, they will fill out a little card that we give them to kind of give us some feedback on how welcoming we are as a church. This is one we got just a, a week or so ago. And it's the first thing I noticed. The, the, the guest writes, a welcome tent. It's a great way to greet visitors. However, that is where the welcome stopped. No one said hello or approached us in the lobby, sanctuary, bathrooms. Okay, I'll give you a pass in the bathrooms. Um, or Sunday school for two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. We have not returned. It's too unwelcoming. Here's our suggestion. Seek out visitors on a church-wide level. Reflect the love of Christ by intentionally engaging in others' lives. Be friendly with others, not just among yourselves. Now, I share that with you because we failed to love that family. We failed. They came into our house 
and we failed to love them. Um, you know, visiting a church is weird and awkward enough. If you've ever done it, it's weird. It's, it's bad enough without being ignored the entire time you're there for two weeks in a row. We need to turn our hearts out. Okay. When you come to church here, hey, get your love on, okay? Meet someone. Greet someone. We don't slap silly visitor hats on them or put flashing lights in their hands to identify them. Just if it's someone you don't know, introduce yourself and let them know you haven't met them and make them feel welcome in the love of Christ. Okay? Y- y'all are creatures of habit. And most of you sit in almost the same place every week, okay? You do. You got, you've staked it out. Pity the person that sits in your spot. You, you end up like the dog trying to find a place to lay down. You just circle, okay? I watch you. But hey, own that section. That's your section. You ought to know everybody that sits within a couple rows of you because they sit there every Sunday, okay? And if they don't, they're a guest, okay? Introduce yourself. Um, for the love of Christ, reach out. This might be heresy at Northway, but come early. Because you know who else comes early? Guests. They're sitting in here all by themselves. Ten to one if they're here on time, they're a guest. (laughs) Introduce yourself to them. Okay? Sit with them. Talk, talk to Jay Burke before the service. He says, hey, I met a guy, so-and-so before. They're going out to lunch with us afterwards. Fantastic. Okay? Anyway, all this to say that JOF matters. It connects to 1 John 3 because it turns our hearts away from the me-word cycle towards others, towards the church, and it helps us love the church, which is the mark of Christ. Next Sunday, we make our commitments for 2015 related to our Journey of Faith campaign, okay? So next Sunday, you need to bring your commitment card, which is also in your email. And if you're not on our email list, there are newsletters and commitment cards on the coffee bar uh, after the service. You can pick one up. Um, But next week, at the close of our worship service, we'll turn them in. I want to see us take a bite out of that 25, only 25% left. Let's take a chunk out of it next year. Join me in that. I want to press us far closer to 100% of North Wakers who say, I'm in. Count me in. Even if you can't give, that you're praying that God would enable you to give and praying for those of us who can, that we'd be faithful. I'm in. It's good for my cheap heart. And you know, the church has a need, and I'm in a place where I can help. So I want to help. I do not want my heart to close to that need. So join me. Okay, next week, join me. Let's meet the church's need. Let's let's be a people who drink in the wonder of being the beloved of Christ. And let's train our hearts to pass it on to every single person that wanders through those doors. And to countless others who never will. Love as Christ has loved you. Pray with me, please. Father, forgive us 
The pull is to me. It's always to me. And Father, I know that those of us who are introverted, it's just, we just want to be by ourselves. And reaching out is not what we naturally do. I think that's our special kind of selfishness sometimes. Forgive us for that. Help us to love as you enable us to love, whether it's just introducing ourselves or whether it's lunch afterwards or whether it's enfolding people into our small group or praying with them, whatever God you ask of us. May our love grow to mirror the love that Christ has shared with us, that he has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. So, Lord, um, make us better lovers like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.